Greetings in the Lord Jesus, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I also want to thank Jonathan for the first message. I was just wondering if he met this John Newton the second, maybe, when he met that excavator. John Newton, the songwriter of Amazing Grace, was a very foul man. He exhausted all the swear words that were available to him, so he made up his own. He was the max. You can think of a crude sailor, wicked, foul-mouthed. God arrested that man. That's amazing to think of that. So next time you meet an excavator... Think of John Newton and think of God can touch this man. That changes our perspective a little bit, doesn't it? And it needs to, needs to mind sometimes. Well, this morning we'll go on with the confession of faith. And I guess if you don't have one, the ushers will bring you one. If you're a visitor or you forgot yours, Although this morning, even though I'm going to go through the outline, it's not essential that you would actually have one. I would feel I'll bring everything out, I believe. I um, I have to think of the topic this morning. We are, the topic is, well, I don't actually have my confession of faith. I don't know what number it is in there, but it's salvation, redemption, Justification, repentance. And I thought, wow, we're going to have to go at 30,000 feet to cover these. But, uh, I, everybody, uh, everybody had a short, we had a short parts this morning. We have lots of time and we don't need to be out of here by 12 till 1230, so we have enough time maybe. <laughs> but let's stop right now. Let's just have another word of prayer before we go on. Our Lord, Jesus, we are grateful to you. We are truly grateful to you as we think of the great salvation, Lord, that you have worked for us. Think of the love, Lord. Think of the salvation that you dreamt up in eternity past, Lord, because you knew our condition. You knew what we needed. You knew each one of us personally. And, Lord, with your great love, you planned a plan of salvation and redemption, repentance and justification for us. So, Lord, we come, we worship you, we thank you, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us this morning out of your word, your purpose, that you would create more love in our hearts for you, more awe, more adoration, and more commitment to serve you for the rest of our lives. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Many years ago, we were friends to a, uh, or acquaintances at least, with a uh, family that moved to Colorado. And when the church out there adopted a confession of faith, the man left the church because he felt that that adopting a confession of faith was putting the Bible aside. Uh, if you remember two weeks ago when we would have had the tradition two way, where the tradition and the Bible takes equal authority, actually you can't have both equal authority. One finally takes precedence over the other. He felt that the confession of faith was replacing the Bible. We're not going to go by it. That's not, that's not the intention of the confession of faith. But he said, the Bible alone, we will not have anything else. And it sounds... Very spiritual. That position sounds very spiritual. And it is very idealistic. But it doesn't appropriately deal with the reality, with the situation on the ground. Confessions were originally written to counteract heresy. 
and you can go down through the confessions, and you can almost determine what for issues the church was facing at the time by the way the confessions were written, because they were to to counteract heresy and then and, and reaffirm what we believe God is saying out of his word. Error is as common as truth. No, that's not true. Error is more common than truth. There's a thousand ways to miss the bird. There's only one way to hit it. Why did Paul write most of the letters he did to the churches? He wasn't just writing a Sunday afternoon letter. He was addressing errors. The uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, the Corinthians. Why did the early church canonize the scripture? Canonize means these we approve as scripture, divinely inspired. It was to weed out the false, the bogus, the counterfeit letters. It's to weed them out and say those are not right, these are right. To fight or to weed out heresy and misplaced focus or out-of-balance emphasis has been a continuing battle. And it's one that we also must fight or will be overcome with error. Now, on the topic of salvation this morning, shall we believe that the Catholic Church does? That when Jesus died, he has all the righteousness of the world. And when he died, his righteousness got poured into the coffers of the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church possesses the righteousness of Christ. And since they have the keys of the kingdom, they can say who gets that righteousness and who doesn't. Shall we believe that? They are the representative of God on earth, right? Or shall we believe, as my Lutheran friend does, that what a person needs to do is have simply believed that Jesus died for them. And if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you're saved. That is the beginning and the end and the totality of the matter. That's all you need to do is just believe that. And if you add anything to that, you destroy the gospel. He said it very clearly. I, I knew I knew what he meant. To require anything or expect anything more than I believe that Jesus died for my sins is to destroy the gospel and its heresy. Shall we believe, as many conservative folks do, and it's not just conservative folks, but it's many, that we just do the best you can, do what the church says, and in the end, you have a hope that you'll get to heaven. You'll probably get there because you did what the church says. The grace of God will cover our failings, and in the end, we have a hope that we'll go to heaven. Or shall we minimize who Jesus was? Like, oh, excuse me. Minimize who Jesus was and is, and instead focus on what he taught and did. That's what the modernists did in the last century. They brought down who Jesus was. They focus on what he did. And you end up with a social gospel. I don't know if you remember the fad that went around 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, these bracelets. and I think it was mostly bracelets, but there's all kinds of things. WWJD. Who remembers that? I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. What would Jesus do? That phrase comes from the, one of the best-selling books of uh, the last century, In His Steps, by Charles Sheldon. Anybody know, uh, anybody read that book, In His Steps? It's a number have. An interesting book. 
Yet what many of us don't realize is that book has a worldview and an agenda that is not really friendly to true Christianity. Do any of you realize that? Okay. I had one head nodding. Okay. I'm not alone in that. Okay, thank you. If you read the book, it represents Jesus as an example to follow, but not as a redeemer to save. It's actually about the redemption of society by good works. And the good works that believers do, but believes out the repentance or the redemption of sinners through the work of Christ. This book was actually a manual for classical liberalism in the last century and the social gospel. And it has evolved in recent times in the emerging church and its missional concept. Or shall we believe, not as Titus thought, not as Titus taught, rather that Titus said that we, our problem is that we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, and we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's our problem. Our problems were foolish, disobedient. Led astray, slaves to various passions and lusts. But instead of believing that, maybe we should believe that the reason we are the way we are is that we went to bed and bumped our head. Or our mother botched our potty training. Or our teacher didn't praise our work well enough. And praise us enough. Today, we can psychologize our condition and explain our problems the whole way from eating disorders to marriage problems on things that have happened to us. And so we spent the last 30 years with all kinds of psychological insights to show us who we are, what we are, and why we are the way we are. Now, actually... Some of that is actually helpful, okay? That's not all wrong. But most of it misses the point. The reason we are the way we are is because our primary problem is that we're sinners. We are foolish. We are disobedient. We are led astray. We are slaves to various passions and lusts. That's the problem. Then you can go out from that. I have no problem with that. But anyhow, that's a little bit of some of the ideas about salvation. And the confession of faith is not a replacement of the Bible, but it's a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches and what we believe is God's heart. Now, as I sought to teach all these realities of salvation... Uh, salvation is the heading. Then be- behind that we have, I don't have it written here. I don't have to cut. But we have redemption. We have justification. We have repentance. When the next uh, one we have is we have sanctification. And is it glorification? Assurance. Assurance. Okay. Those are all products of a true salvation. So salvation is like the heading. And as I thought of how to describe salvation... Uh, I got actually some insight from Paris Reinhardt. Paris Reinhardt, he's the one that preached the message, Ten Shekels and a Shirt. Some of you would be familiar with him. When he taught about in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, he talked about the great salvation which first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So he's talking about a great Great salvation. Most of the time when we think of salvation, we think of being saved. We think of forgiveness of sin. We think of pardon. But salvation is much bigger than that. 
And uh, I don't think I'll write it down. I'm going to write some things down further. But there's a few things I want you to remember. I'll get it. So, salvation, he described it has four tenses to it. It has a past perfect tense. And if there's any English teachers in here, you tell me if these tenses are correct. I had taught this before, and one of these was wrong. I think it was the first one, but maybe you'll catch it. But there's four tenses of salvation in the scripture. The past perfect tense, a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. The past perfect tense is, I have been saved from the pleasure of sin. That's repentance. Past tense is, I was saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. The present tense is, I am being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. And the future tense, I will be saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification. All those are different aspects of salvation. So if someone asks you if you are saved, ask them. Well, what do you mean? I have been, I was, I am being, I will be. Which one are you talking about? And then we can discuss it. You see, salvation has generally been reduced to only a fraction of the reality that Jesus died to give us. The use of the word in the Bible is far larger and greater than the forgiveness of sins. And there's a few verses that I'm just going to read here. Paul said, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. If he has saved us by his death... How much shall we be saved by his life? And here's the classic one. Who delivered us from so great a death, and he doth deliver, in whom he trusts he will yet deliver us. That's Paul speaking in some situation in his life. So salvation is the sum total of what God has done through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. Okay, we believe and confess that all who put their faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Faith and confidence. Very similar words. We'll read a few verses here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Probably one of the first verses that our children can memorize. And also in 1 Corinthians 15:1-4, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye have, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I deliver unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. The gospel. You understand how this happens, don't you? We have heard about the fall of man. We have heard about heaven and hell. Heard about Satan. 
we understand that we are sinners, that we have violated God's law. And as sinners, we are in cohorts with Satan. And then when we discover that, we do like Benjamin Franklin did. He did try to become perfect, and he tried to stop what he knew was wrong, what he knew he shouldn't do, and he tried to stop it. And you can guess what happened. He couldn't. I don't know if you've ever done that. We can't stop it. But the moral law is an expression of the righteous character of God. The law defines the condition the law of God, and and our conscience agrees to it, that the law of God defines the condition in which must be met perpetually and perfectly by us In, in, in order for any person to approach God, he must keep the law perfectly. The law says, this is what God requires of you. This is God, this is who God is in terms of his righteousness, and this is what God requires of all who would approach him. Now, the law does not bar anyone from God. It's the violation of the law that bars any person from God. If you would keep the law perfectly, you could walk right into God's presence And you could be right in there with God. But because you violate the law of God, there's an iron gate comes down and says, between you and God, it comes down and says, you may not move forward. You may not approach God. You are unclean. You are a sinner. This is the law's response to sin. It bars people from God. The law actually cannot commend us to God. It just says this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And and then the law, what it does, the law commands. And then when you fail the law, it criticizes and it condemns. So that's what the law does. It commands. Then there's a failure. Then it criticizes and condemns. And that is the relationship that anyone has who is under the law with God. The relationship you have with God, if you're trying to perform, is exactly that. It's not a relationship that I want to be in. You've got to perform. When you fail, there's a criticism and there's a condemnation. Or then you try again. You can't win. In other words, we need to have assurance of hell before we can have assurance of salvation. The law says you've got to perform. You've got to do it. And it's, at some point, you can look at yourself and your ability and say, I give up. I do not have the ability I know in my heart of hearts that I am a sinner. I know that I'm not going to go to heaven. I know that I am doomed. You know, I'm actually giving you my own testimony. I'm giving you my own experience. I'm not going to get right with God by trying to do harder. There is no way. And then we hear all who put their faith and confidence in Jesus shall be saved. Now that sounds like good news to me. When I was 12 years old, approximately 12 years old, I know that God was speaking to my heart and I I came under pretty serious conviction of sin. And I knew I was a sinner. And I 
I'm not going to go through the whole test, but I didn't do anything about it. At 24 years of age, I was still at that same place. 12 years. And I remember the time and I remember the moment when faith rose up in my heart. There is a way. I don't have to live like this. There is a way. All who put their faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And I got saved. Now, I still have major issues in my life, but I tell you one thing that happened. I had faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and not myself. That was the major thing that happened that night. I was a new person. And the rest of the confession, what we're going through uh, today's morning, puts some meat on as far as what faith and confidence in Jesus means. So let's go to the next one. Jesus is the one who made the sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And then we have a fairly lengthy reading out of Hebrews chapter 9. And I think I'll read it. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves are better sacrificed than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figure of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in 13.12 of Hebrews, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus is the sacrifice that makes us acceptable to God. Now how does Jesus sacrifice How does his death on the cross, way back there, enable us to be right with God? To help us understand what's going on, I'm going to have a little bit of a rerun of uh, the last communion message, just a small part of it. I'm going to look at four words. We're going to look at offenses. And offender, and the offended, and the offering or the sacrifice. Four words we want to look at as we look at the sacrifice of Jesus and how how it works that his sacrifice works for us. What are the offenses, do you think? Who do you think is the offender? In your own mind, answer the question. Who do you think is offended and what is the offering? Well, God is the offended one. We'll look at these three first ones together first. Offended, offender, and the offenses. God is the offended one because God is holy and God hates sin. God hates black sin. God hates gray sin. God God hates white sin. Red sin, yellow sin, blue sin. Whatever color your sin is, God hates it. Many people think that God grades on the curve, that you, if you are better than 
most of the people around you, God will be okay with you. Not at all. God is offended at sin. Every man, every woman, every boy or girl at the age of accountability, that's all of us, whether our sins are open or whether they're secret, whether they are refined sins or whether they are coarse sins like that blasphemer, whether they are subtle sins or gross, they all deserve God's wrath. Sinners break God's law daily. Sinners do not love God as they should. Sinners by nature are ungrateful and thankless before God. And sinners are by one degree or another all idolatrous and proud. Sinners offend God by their thoughts, by their actions, and by their words. They are unloving and unlovable. They are hateful to God and others. So who are the offenders? It's everybody. What are the offenders doing? What are doing offenses? If you go down the road and you speed, call driving too fast in common language, you commit an offense toward the state. And when you do that, the state can prosecute you for violating the law. You become an offender when you commit an offense. And you commit an offense towards the one who made the law which in this case is God. God is absolutely righteous. He's the absolutely ruler of everything. And he's the absolute standard of right and wrong. God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. He also says, the wages of sin is death. God is angry with the wicked every day. One sin by Adam and Eve, was enough to throw the whole world into chaos. One sin. And we still have the effects of it today. God is offended by man's failing to keep his law. Well, why doesn't God, the offended one, just forgive us? He's a loving God, is he not? He, he, mercy is one of his attributes, right? So why don't he just forgive? Well, Imagine you, as a father, would come home one day and a mass murderer has broken into your house and killed your wife and all your children and he's just finishing off the last child with blood still on his hand when you come home. Well, he gets arrested and eventually he stands before the judge and the judge looks down at the murderer And he tells him, I'm a loving judge. I care about you. Therefore, I'm going to let you go. You can walk out of the courtroom. What do you have there? You have a judge who is more of a criminal than the murderer doing that. God can't do that. He can't just let us off. He wouldn't be just. He would be unjust to do that. We can't avert the wrath of God. We can't, like the man that was convicted of manslaughter, supposedly it's true, he convicted of manslaughter, he got 30 years. And he told the judge that sentenced him, said, I have a dog, I'll offer the dog to take my place in jail. And I think it's a good idea, because, well, number one, it will cost less to house him. Number two, he probably won't live for 30 years. So, let him take my place. You can't do that. You can't get someone else to take your place. You're the one who did the offense. You have to bear that offense. 
You have to absorb the punishment. And nothing that we can do will release us from the damnation of God. We can't have any new resolves. We can't try to do better. There's nothing we can do. We are guilty. There's where we enter the offering. That's why God himself provided the propitiation for us. That word we had studied at the last communion, propitiation. It is true that God loves us. That is true. But it's also true that he is just. He is angry with sin and the sinner. So God became a man. As a man, he did not sin. Not even once. Not even in thought. And not in word or in deed. Then by the pre-planned and predetermined will of God, he was killed on a cross. He spilled his blood. He died forsaken and separated from God. That cup that in the Garden of Gethsemane, that cup that he had to drink, where he took upon him the sins of the world, or he shrank back in horror, he took our sins. He took God's wrath, which we had coming towards us. He took it on himself. He was the sacrifice. And Jesus' blood, that righteous blood that that was spilled, and uh, you can go back to the whole, we won't have time to go into the whole sacrificial system. But that blood of Jesus, that righteous blood, avails for our sins. It covers our sins. He's the one who paid. He didn't have to die because he was sinless, but he took our death. And he propitiated or satisfied God's wrath so that God's holiness would not be compromised when he forgives sinners. And not only does he forgive the sinner, but since the sin issue has been taken care of, that iron gate that came down between the sinner and God is opened up, and the sinner can now walk into the presence of God. And here I have a, yeah, Peter. First Peter says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed or bought back with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot, without blemish, and without spot. Redeem me to be bought back. We were bought from the devil to God. We were redeemed from being in the devil's kingdom and we were brought into, into God's kingdom. Christ overcame the devil right on his own turf and did not give in to him in sin. Then he died in our place and he rose again victorious over death and hell. O death, where is thy sting? So Jesus is the one who made the sacrifice that is acceptable to the Father. And and these offenses and the offender are wiped out. And in there we have a child of God. That is amazing. That is enough to bring us to worship God. Okay, the next point. Man must respond with faith in the sacrifice of Christ. 2,000 years ago, Christ died on a cross. Today, I'm a sinner. Man must respond with faith to the sacrifice of Christ. And here we have a few scriptures. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. But what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. 
Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let's imagine you're, you fell overboard. You're in the middle of the ocean, there's an, and you fell overboard, and you're in the water. And you're going to drown unless you're rescued. And lo and behold, a whole slew of ropes come flying your direction. They all promise they're going to rescue you. You have the good works rope. If you do good works, you'll get saved. You have the ropes of many different kinds of religions that come your way, that this is the way. Uh, you do yoga, a reincarnation, or whatever you want. All kinds of ropes come your way. Or you can com- be convinced maybe that I'm not drowning, really. I'll be okay. I don't have to cry anything. I'll be okay. Nothing will happen to me. And then comes the rope, Jesus Christ. He promises to pull you in, to dry you out, and to take you to land. As you evaluate and you consider, you are convinced that he will do what he said. And when you are convinced that he will do what you said, you grab a hold of that rope and you let him take control. That's what it means to respond in faith to the sacrifice of Jesus. It means you need to believe it personally yourself. You respond with faith in Jesus. And don't forget this one. You have to let go of all the other ropes. It's only one. There's only one way. Let go of the other ropes. Grab a hold of the Jesus rope. Okay, next point. Our faith leads us to repent of our sinful life. You have faith now? It leads you. And it's actually worded correctly. Faith leads. Faith works. Faith moves you. It's a faith. If, it's a, if it is faith, it works. It's by faith Noah, by faith Abraham. And so it says our faith leads us and leads us to repent of our sinful life. Now, repentance is simply turning around. It's just simply you're doing what you're doing and you turn around and you go another direction. Your faith will lead you to repent. One of the things it will lead you to do is forsake all the other ropes. When Jesus was informed, some people came to Jesus and they, they, they told him how Pilate mingled the worshippers' blood with their sacrifices. What basically, as I understand it, there were some people in the temple. Pilate came in and murdered them. And the, 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 the blood that they were offering, their blood, their own blood, got mingled with the sacrifices. And, and the people came to Jesus and said how horrible this was. They're in the church and someone comes in and murders them. And Jesus didn't respond like maybe we would. He said, well, you think they were worse sinners than you guys? <laughs> he said, unless you repent, you're going to get the same. You're no better than they are. You think they were worse sinners, basically, he asked them. And then he even went further. He said, remember that tower, tower, tower that fell? Tyre Siloam, and it killed 18 people. You think they were worse sinners? No, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. John the Baptist preached repentance. So did Jesus, and so did Peter at Pentecost. Repentance towards God is an event that will completely change your life. It'll change the course of your life. It'll transform the rest of your life. Now, repentance includes, number one, is godly sorrow. And um, 
we have the verses there about godly sorrow in Second Corinthians, and I'll, I'll read that. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sword, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. That repentance transformed what they did. Now, the question we could ask is repentance only for the initial salvation? I had no idea how sinful and wicked my heart really was when I got saved. As the Holy Spirit illuminates more and more of our hearts, we have many more opportunities to repent. And many more opportunities to be amazed at the love of God who could love me even though he knew that stuff was in my heart. I didn't know it, but he knew. But patience, through some trials, through some discipline, he brings them up and we can repent again. Okay, so repentance includes godly sorrow. It includes hatred for former sins, which is which is um, sort of synonymous, just a number of different points under repentance. So should we, should we um, since God, and this is course to refute, this is to refute a belief that you can be a Christian and yet continue in a lot of sins. That's what the confession of faith here is, is addressing right here. And in Romans 6, we have these verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And we'll turn, go down to the last verse. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. When I was growing up, this happened a few times. I remember being upstairs in bed already. It was 9 o'clock. It was dark. And us children went up to bed upstairs. And my mother, my dear mother, my mom, went into the pantry. And she met a mouse. And it didn't matter where you were in the house. When mom and mouse meet, you know it. There's, there's just this thing, something about mice and mom that didn't, that they do not go together. Um, one time, she saw a mouse on a certain kind of candy. I think it was peanut butter cups. And it twisted her so much emotionally that she couldn't enjoy peanut butter cups for years. Because of the association. Mom and mice do not mix. Now what happens when saints and sin meet? It's a question. The repentance, uh, the, uh, uh, the confession says, repentance includes a hatred for sin. A hatred for sin. And I wonder, and I'm talking to myself, I wonder if I hate sin like my mom hated mice. Now, don't you think that would be a good thing to hate sin that bad? At least have a short fuse on sin. My mom had an extremely short fuse. It's about one-fourth of a second. Not sin, mice. She had an extremely short fuse. When it comes to saints and sin, uh, sin, we should have a short fuse. In fact, one of the evidences, it is one of the evidences of the Spirit in our lives. Loving a secret sin 
is a major warning sign for any one of us. It's a warning sign of a heart that is either devoid of the Spirit or one in which the Spirit is majorly repressed. If you are a Christian, sin will bring the loving discipline of God on your life. Like a child who needs training, we as Christians need to understand again and again the horribleness of sin. Like some children, some of us learn the hard way. Hatred for sin. The next point is confession of sin. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, confession is simply agreeing with God that what he says about every sin and accepting and agreeing with him in our actions and in our thoughts. It's if, if, if we stray, if we, if we stray into the area where it is not, God is not accepted with God, we confess it. We agree with God. Yes, Lord, we did that. That is right. I was wrong. I confess it. And you turn back. Confession of sin. True confession includes taking the positive action to avoid that sin in the future. The next point is seeking for deliverance and victory. And in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we have these verses. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now this point actually belongs in the area of sanctification, which is the next message. But we're going to talk about it now. A little bit here. Seeking for deliverance and victory. We have a walk behind mower at home. Now, when I was a boy, we had push mowers. You had a mower that you pushed. Well, they don't have push mowers. I guess they still do today, but nobody has a push mower anymore. You now have walk-behind mowers. Well, our walk-behind mower has a special feature. It's called a personal pace self-propelled feature. Instead of gears like those old mowers you put in one gear or a second gear and a third gear, and then you push the handle and it goes faster or slower depending which gear you have it in, it has it's set up so that you just have a handle that you push, And the further in you push the handle, the faster it goes. Now the question is, what is causing the mower to move forward? Is the mower moving forward or are you pushing it? And here's the tension. Taking it into the sanctification part. There are those who teach that we need to let go and let God. If you, there are those who say that, no, you should not put forth effort. Sanctification is something that God does. God does the sanctification. It's his power. It's his grace. So is sanctification something God does? Or is the sanctification something you do? And the answer is yes. Like when you're pushing that mower forward, who's making the mower go forward? You or the mower? The answer is yes. You do need to put effort. So letting go and letting God and waiting for God to zap us and take us to some higher plane where we no longer struggle with sin. There were times when I thought that's the Christian life and that was what I was seeking for. It's just, you know, the second work of grace. I don't know how much you have heard of that. So, the source of sanctification is the grace of God. He is the source. 
the means of sanctification is human effort. Like the more, it's a cooperation between God and man. You will never do it. But God will not do it for you. And there will be some people who would say, how can you say that? You have just destroyed the purity of the gospel. Let's look at a few other verses here. In, uh, and you can turn to this verse. I'd like to you to look at this one. In Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at a little bit at this whole thing about sanctification part. In Second Peter chapter 1, at verse 3, we're going to start reading. We could read more, but I'll, I'll start cutting at verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these promises ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And now let's focus on the next verse. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and on and on it goes. Peter actually does say, by faith alone, doesn't he? Does he? Well, he actually says, add to your faith. And how should you add to your faith? He says, with all diligence. Now, diligence is an interesting word. It is a very, very intense word. It means intense effort. It means haste. It means to do it quickly, to do it now, and to do it intensely. Stop sitting around. It's the opposite. It means carefulness, zeal, earnestness, endeavor. In fact, it means all the things that we read there in Second Corinthians. That's what they did. They gave diligence. We are to bring alongside with what God has done for us, the grace, the work, the, the spirit. We are to bring alongside all that God has done for us in us, and we are to give every ounce of determination that we can muster alongside with God's grace. God has given us all the resources. Now we are to use them with everything we got. It's actually not unlike the talent that we read this morning. Not unlike that at all. The opposite of diligence is to be lazy, lethargic, half-hearted, laid back, and casual. There's that word, casual. A laid-back, casual approach to God in terms of your approach to the Christian life is not a virtue. And yet, it is the spirit of our age. We are immersed in a Christianity that when it comes to sanctification, it is way down on the list, way down the list of importance. Not that they say it's not important. But it's way down. Christian liberty is much higher. Christian ministry is much higher. And many other things are higher. But when it comes to this, it's much lower. A casual, laid-back approach to God in terms of our approach to the Christian life is not a virtue. Even though we know that sanctification is a process, that it will take time, there is no excuse for an armchair, lazy, cross-arm, lazy chair approach to it. It's never right to say, don't put pressure on me. Because Peter is putting the pressure on. He is demanding, he is telling them to have an extravagant, spare no cost, do whatever it takes, effort. 
Or would you rather give God the leftovers, being cheap and stingy about your Christian growth? You know, we must pursue holiness, but it is God who is ultimately the one who sacrifices. We must never look at ourselves. We must always look to God and then give it all we got. It's his power and it's his righteousness that eventually is what is going to we want simply we want him to shine out of us all his grace and humility and love. We want that to shine out of us and we have a part in that. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, the last few here. And I don't have a lot to add here, but uh, they're pretty well self-explanatory. Faith. Excuse me. We had a faith, and then we had repentance, and, and all those other ones. And it says here, faith causes us believers to respond with deep love, obedience, and appreciation to Jesus Christ, who loves us and gave Himself for us. And I don't think there's anybody here this morning who would disagree with that. If you would take that home and meditate on that, and you would just allow the Spirit of God, you think of the offended, the uh, think of your offenses you have done, you think of how you have offended God, and think of the offering that Christ has done, and giving us that hope and that release and that relationship. Respond with deep love and obedience and appreciation to Jesus Christ is a natural response. Here we have these verses here in John 14, verses 21 to 24. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judah said unto him, not not his chariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the father which sent me. And the next one. For those who come to God this way, God forgives and blots out the remembrance of all their sins through Jesus' blood. And we could just right now sing that John Newton song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind. I was blind, but now I see. <clears throat> God forgives and blots out the remembrance of all their sins through Jesus' blood. All who come to Christ this way. And I have a few verses here. Isaiah 43:22. It's God speaking. I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. And Acts 3.19 Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And the last point all who try to come to God by any other way any way other than through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ cannot enter heaven they will be accounted as thieves and robbers. John 9:41. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entered not by the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. And there, again, it is important that we come, at the illustration I've given about grabbing the Jesus rope, forsaking everything else for the Lord Jesus. Mark Twain, who was not a Christian, had one thing right about the Christian life. He said, heaven 
goes by favor. Said if it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Think a little bit. But he got that right. At least the emphasis. Well, salvation, redemption, justification, repentance. I trust that the Lord has spoken to each one of us this morning. And, uh, and if there's someone who doesn't understand it or has not understand it, stood it in the past, there is a way. There is a way to meet the offended one. It is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't we just stand for a word of prayer, thanksgiving? Our Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful to you, Lord. Lord, what what love, what out-of-the-world love you have showed to us that you would love us. Lord, we even don't know who we all were in our sins. We don't even know the depth of our offenses towards you. You know more about us than we do. And yet you have made a way and brought us into your family, into your household, into your kingdom. Made us, Lord, and equipped us, given us gifts, given us purpose, hope, and a reason to live, and a glorious future. Lord, we just are awed as we think of your great, uh, your great love to us and of the, uh, the immensity of your mercy. So, Lord, I do pray for each one of us here that you would truly use us in your kingdom and that you would truly, Lord, guide us, make us the kind of people you want us to be. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.